Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, and today I am by myself. Uh, my colleague Paul Rickard is uh, out of action. So, okay, The Switzer Show is purely Switzer. And uh, joining me later on the show will be Sean Burns. He's a Senior Portfolio Manager at Contango Asset Management. And I thought it'd be good to know what it's like to be a Portfolio Manager. What's it like to look after other people's money you know, is it the sort of thing that creates bald-headed men and very worried women? Look, uh, I think it's a very you know, reasonable question to ask, and Sean Burns will be put on the spot. We'll also talk about the funds that he manages, how he manages them, how, what, kind of, what number of stocks he'll have in there, and, and all the sort of things that might be worrying him at the moment or making him feel comfortable about being invested in the stock market. And then we'll talk to Marty Grunstein, who's a consumer behaviour expert. And uh, I told him that I'd be talking to him about retailers and what retailers should be doing to get people into their stores. But I'm going to trick him a bit in the sense that I'm going to ask him how he got the kind of job that most of you out there would love to do. See, Martin Grunstein has been on the professional business speaking circuit probably for over 30 years. And when he started, it was the kind of thing that you were paid anywhere between three to $5,000 a job. You flew business class, a one-hour speech. You stayed at international hotels. You... Um, you lived the life of Grunston, I guess, in many ways. And so I'm going to ask him how he went from being a normal person to become a very well-paid. And Marty, you know, in his heyday, would have done probably 100 speeches a year, without a doubt. And with that kind of money, he was probably bringing about half a million dollars, simply doing what he loved doing, talking about retail and customer service and all that sort of stuff. And he's probably one of the, the funniest speakers on the speaking circuit who does not only comedy but also very, very interesting advice for people who are running businesses. If there's one thing we all really want in life is to get richer. And a guy who spends his whole life trying to make other people richer is Sean Burns, Senior Portfolio Manager at Contango Asset Management. Now, a portfolio manager takes a whole pile of money that's been sent to them, uh, the, to the business, and this portfolio manager has to select the stocks that will ultimately grow in value, return capital gain, and dividends as well. And that's the kind of, you know, very... Easy life that a portfolio manager lives as he tries to make all of us richer and richer. Sean Burns, thanks for joining us on The Switzer Show. It's a pleasure, Peter. Now, mate, do you, do you get kind of nervous about the fact that there are people watching you, making sure that you actually perform well on, a, I guess, a quarterly basis? Is, is that how you get assessed? Oh, it can be oh, sometimes it's a lot lot shorter than that, but it's um, I think yeah we, we like to think probably quarterly or yearly is probably enough to um, enough of a time frame to give adequate 
mm. measure you know, to uh, to see how how things are going in this game. Yeah. Do, do you think you've lost hair given the fact that you've decided to go into a a, a fairly stressful kind <laughs> kind of uh, work? Yeah, I sometimes sort of uh, contemplate that it's uh, you know stress comes with territory here, I, I suspect. So it's uh, you know I've been doing it for a while. Sometimes you think, do you? Is there an easier thing to do? But it's a case of if you if you love it, if you keep doing it. Um, yeah, that's uh, all comes with the territory. Okay, so how many years have you been uh, in a sort of portfolio manager role? Oh, I started in this um, managing money in the late 80s, so what's that make it, 30, 30 years? Mm. What? Yeah. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's a fair while. Okay, so I, I guess, you know, most people would like to become confident in the way that they ultimately select their investments how do you actually decide whether you like a company or not? I think that it also depends, I suppose, the first um, decision you have to make is where you want to sit in the risk spectrum. Mm. Um, and most of, most people um, probably you know, don't think about that too much, but you have to think whereabouts, what type of company do you want to invest in? Do you want something that's going to give you lots of thrills and spills? Or you want something that's uh, you know, fairly solid, it's a good business and you know, it'll have its ups and downs but it'll be a lot less and it should deliver over the medium to longer term. So what we look at is, is towards the lower risk end and pick companies that have good balance sheets uh, in, in reasonable businesses that throw off cash. Um, the management is is, is, is okay or, or good. You know? So it's uh, they're doing a good job um, and, so, and, and then we wait for the businesses to deliver. Um, so we don't sort of go up uh, into the too much into the risky where you know things could work out for them and then it's all fine or things completely fall apart. Um, mm. Yeah, you know, we don't sort of venture into that end too much. In your lifetime in this uh, industry, have you ever been involved in a fund where you know you or a fund manager were actually trying to shoot the lights out and go for those big returning companies? Yeah, yes, yeah. I mean, I think it just depends on what your underlying, um, what your underlying client wants. Mm. Um, you know, some it has the industry has sort of evolved into um, sort of core holdings with sort of satellite funds. Within the aim of the satellite funds is to um, do as much, best as they can, and um, you know, and, and with that comes a lot of volatility. Um, so you have to be you and your clients have to be prepared for for what's uh, what's in store. You know, you could have some great months and then a series of terrible months and then great months again. You know, mm. so um, going through that has a you know, has an impact on your client and, and on on you as well. You know, and you have to be prepared for that. Okay. Now nowadays, and I should explain to, to people who are listening that you know, Sean, you're the portfolio manager for my Switzer Dividend Growth Fund, and you're also the portfolio manager for CIE, which is the Contango Income Generator. Um, so, That's so, but both of those are at the, generally speaking, they're at the sleep easy uh, overnight end of the investing spectrum, aren't they? That's correct. Yeah, with CIE, it's it's outside the top thirty, so it has a skew towards slightly smaller companies or, or smaller companies. So again, you you have a bit a little bit more volatility with those sometimes. So we try and but we try and keep to a pool where there's lower volatility in cash and dividends. 
um, for Switzer to, to a lot of the large companies in there as well. And so we're looking for cash flow and yield um, and to keep into the quality end. Yeah, so in the case of the fund that you manage for me, you know, because I'm a chicken and I, I don't like taking <laughs> big risks with, with my money or anybody else's money, we, we've explained the, the, the way in which you select stocks for our fund. Well, I think that with with Switzer, we start with thinking like um, we want to get a yield above market, you know, um, appreciably above market. So we look at those stocks which can offer that. Um, then we want that in a sustainable basis. So those that continue to pay dividends. Now, those often, those stocks that can uh, pay a high yield are usually low growth. So we sort of blend that with a, with a group of um, stocks which we think will... Um, which will, uh, you know, do capital growth over time. So it's a, uh, but we're all, but putting that all together, it's, it's definitely towards the, the quality end of the of the market. You know, these are companies with good management, good balance sheets, cash flow. They will, um, they should should never get into trouble from what we can see. Mm. You know, and that, um, and that, uh, that's good when you know when tough times arrive. That these companies should be able to see their way through that. We don't want, um, you know, we, I don't think we've ever had a company that skips a dividend and, you know, we don't want companies, um, you know, we've never had one go into, you know, financial difficulties. Um, yeah. So, uh, so you know, that, that costs you sometimes in bull markets when people get very, very, you know, uh, very, uh, they, have, they have a very favourable outlook towards towards the future. So they're prepared to buy, get up those type of stocks, but we're, we're sitting in those that are pump out dividends and should grow, see capital over time, but they will be, you know, whatever we can see coming, they mm. should be able to get through to the other side. Okay, now how many stocks do you have in funds like Switz and CIE, and why do you have that number? Uh, it's, oh, there's a whole whole heap of, um, uh, you know, uh, theoretical work that's been done on what's the optimal size of the portfolio, and I've read, like, if you're going to ask me what it is, Peter, I can't remember because yeah, I read it well, a long well, time ago. The but it does, yeah, but it does. Around 35 is, yeah. is usually regarded as um, uh, getting a good mix of stocks, mm. and and so you're not like you know. And also, you have to look underneath that and see what are the themes running through the portfolio. Have you got a lot of similar stocks? So you may think, hey, I'm diversified, but you're really not because um, you know something could come in, whether it be FX or interest rates or or government regulation, something, and hit several of your stocks the same way, mm. and that's uh, that's not a good thing if you're looking for diversity. And the idea of being diversified is that you get a smoother return over time, and also that those one-off shocks may hit one of your one or two of your stocks, but they're not going to like hit all of them, you know, or, or half of them, or a quarter of them. You know, that should only limit any damage that you can't foresee. So. Um, so we, we travel around between 30 and 40 for Switz and yeah. probably a little bit higher than that for CIE. Okay, so um, you said that with a comp- the sort of companies that you chase both for CIE and Switz, that um, there's a, a highly likelihood that they won't skip a dividend because the history has told you these companies haven't. I guess it still could happen under the severest of, um, of circumstances. But in your mind, uh, Bernsey, for both these funds, do you think there's a, a minimum annual dividend return 
that would be the lowest you would expect, even under the worst circumstances? And I, and I know you yep. aren't necessarily going to be right, but in your head, you must have some kind of idea of what might be the worst case scenario. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the GFC was probably the worst case. So yeah. Certainly, you know, I've been through a few few um, ups and downs in, in the market. Now, 92 was very, very bad in Australia. Um, and, and the GFC was, was bad in terms that it just frightened the... Frightened the, the uh, mm. <laughs> frightened everyone in terms of like the liquidity drying up around the world, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the future looked particularly bleak. And so, the first thing you know, government, um, sorry, um, boards do is, is is cut the you know, conserve cash, cut the dividend down. So, you know, you could see what happened there. I mean, I, you know, you saw the banks cut their dividends down. Um, uh, I think most of the most companies, at least, were flat or lower, mm. but. But then they, you know, again it goes back to what are their balance sheets? You know, can they can they withstand a, a year or two of really tough times and, and keep their dividend coming out with the cash they're doing? So, yeah, you know, so you know, even if if you know, it, it's hard to say exactly how that falls, Peter, to say where it would go. But we can see through the GFC that was that was particularly difficult for companies because uh, the future looked quite bleak there so you know when they're declaring dividends they didn't actually know what was going to happen you know mm. next year or the year after but you can see that you know uh, a lot of the companies were you know that had strong dividends you know still declared declared um sorry strong balance sheets still declared uh, reasonable dividends mm. all things considered so i'd expect that to happen again and and you know uh, corporate australia is a much better straight now than it was back then yep so let's just go through the history of of Swiss in terms of what its return on a, a, a per annual basis in terms of the dividend or the yield all oh, right it's it's um we we sort of target at least um, the, the way Switch works. It, it's it's it pays out the dividends that um, companies pay us. So that's that's travelling around five and a half percent. We also pay out um, the profits we make on top of that. Realised profits we make on top of that. So so we and um, and over the over the year before we 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 managed to get a, a fair few profits out. Um, Last year we participated in a lot of buybacks, which used up those profits. But I think that um, you know we're expecting you know probably five percent. I would have thought. Um, yeah, it's hard to say going forward because we don't know what we're realising profits going forward. But I know the underlying um, dividend of the of the portfolio is about five and a half. Okay, so that's before franking credits. That's yes, before franking. Okay, yeah, so, so, so still, still valuable now. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. yeah. Now, very valuable. Okay, so in terms of CIE, is is it in a similar ballpark when it comes to the the, the expected um, dividend? The uh, the difference with CIE, it's a company, so that has a a uh, board of directors and it has a company structure, so it pays a, a dividend like a normal company, mm. and its state of policy is to pay six and a half percent of MTA. And so far, it's managed to do that. Um, it's, and the franking is run at about fifty percent of that six and a half percent. So the, the so the yield on um, you know, when you look at from inception, the, the amount of dividends that CIOs paid out has been quite significant. Um, you know, over you know, over twenty cents on a yeah. on a dollar share price that it started with. So it's um, it's it has paid out a, a lot in dividends. 
Okay, mate. And, so, and that's the aim to going forward to continue to do that. Okay, so so let's just that that's basically, you know, what you do, what your goals are. What do you think the the international setting is for stocks? Are, are you feeling comfortable that the twelve months runway for stocks are going to be positive, or or are you nervous? Oh, I'm always nervous, Peter, but I think that. Um uh, when we saw the, and we've seen the sort of growth slow down a bit, we saw that particularly in Australia in um, you know, in the first half of this year, and we got a whole series of downgrades around, you know, which I think was um, a lot of that would be election re- uh, related, but also the you know, the economy slowed. In the States as well, the economy slowed, then people are thinking, well, how much of that is the trade issues with China, et cetera. Um, but then the Fed has come out and, and, and made a, a lot of noises that um, they're prepared to cut rates. So the, the, they so they skew the risk return away from the downside when they do that because you know, if, if the economy starts to struggle, they're prepared to um, start start uh, putting liquidity into the into the system again. And I think you know where where liquidity rests in the world you know is is difficult to measure, but. It uh, gives everyone confidence that um, if, if liquidity is flowing, yeah. that um, there is there is buying for, for assets, um, and it won't won't freeze up or dry up on mm. you. So, um, it, which it, is we're, which we're seeing big dips, you know, in the past from. If you were worried about the stock market future, would you change a lot of the stocks that you're currently holding? Yeah, I think that. Um, you, yeah, I mean, we have been reasonably defensive, and I think you probably have to go even more defensive if that's the case. I mean, I, I think that uh, I, I don't think we're off to the races in in terms of earnings growth. Um, I think that we it's it's more like um, slow and slow and steady earnings. I mean, Australia it's been next to zero, but slow and steady, but with a good underlying of low interest rates and and excess liquidity, which is under under. Yeah, underpinning the the market rather than strong earnings growth, and and the states has, the US has done a, a, fair, a bit better on earnings growth than Australia, right. but I think that um, but it's more of a, a case of um, let, let's see how liquidity pans out. If that starts to dry up, then you start to get worried, and you can start to see the signs in the credit markets, etc., when they start to tighten up. Okay, now we're up, up about eighteen percent since the start of this year. Um, that's a big rise. If, yeah. if if Trump gets a trade deal, do you think we'll still see another leg up? Uh, maybe, maybe. I think, yeah. That's, that's a strong answer, Burnsy. It's a very yeah, strong maybe. answer, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to encourage well, our listeners yeah. to feel confident here. Go on. Yeah, I, I'm just trying to predict what what um, what, uh, what Trump does mm. uh, over any is, – is quite you – know, and, 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 would anyone be really surprised if you suddenly, um, you know, re- reneges on it and goes backwards and starts it all over again? I, I don't so. think people be too. People probably wouldn't be too surprised about that. So he, he's just adding a, a bit of volatility to it. But I think that you know, in terms of um, the market overall, you know, I think look at interest rates, look at inflation. If low inflation gives the Fed flexibility to put liquidity in the system. And that's uh, that's what's underwriting markets at the moment. So okay. as long as that continues, then that's sort of gives you your base base case. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's about the the most Burnsy will do to give you a hint or a leg up. <laughs> but it's, if it was negative, you'd you'd really know about. It. Uh, Sean Burns, thanks for joining us on the Switzer Show. Uh, pleasure, Peter.
Are you an investor in stocks? Do you want to become better at it? Join us at the Switzer Listed Investment Conference in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane and hear from Australia's best money managers. On the day, they'll tell you how they're investing, stocks they're backing and how to build and diversify your investment portfolio. To purchase tickets to the day, head to www.switzerevents.com.au and we'll see you there. My next guest is Martin Grunstein, a man who's been on the speaking circuit for oh, probably an eternity. Uh, he's one of the most sought after and entertaining speakers on things like customer service and marketing your business. And uh, we're going to talk about what retailers have to do to compete in this really, really crazy world. And I think as as consumers that deal with retailers, we sometimes scratch our heads and say, why do these people treat me like this? Don't they realise that I'm a customer, that I'm really worth keeping? That's what I want to talk to Martin about in the second part of my interview. But the first part, which I haven't told him about, I want to talk about well, how come he's been able to do what most people out there listening would love to do, be a speaker on the speaking circuit, living the life of Riley, being overpaid, not really working hard, flying around business class, staying in national hotels and having a really, really good time. Martin Grunstein, thanks for joining us on The Switzer Show. <laughs> My pleasure, Peter. <laughs> I just thought to myself... People who listen to this show, sure, they're interested in retail. If they're in business, they're really interested. But most people really hate your guts, you know, because you, you are living the life, living the dream that most people would love to dream. And so I want to ask you, ask you, how in the hell did you wrangle it to get in such a cozy position? First question, where are you going? I've got to be honest, I have no idea. Uh, it, uh, I started off as a, as a, you know, as a marketing graduate. I was working at Colgate when I... And in, the, in 1985, I met a, a doctor friend of mine who said he got set up telling people 15 times a day there's nothing wrong with them and the only people doing any sort of motivation were Americans. Why don't we have a crack at the speaking business? Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we jumped into it in the 80s. Uh, his wife wanted to be a doctor rather than a speaker, so he pulled out straight away. And I was selling motivational talks in the 80s. And then when the 90s recession came, I, I refocused what I did into uh, into uh, customer service and sales and marketing. Uh, but I only speak to support my golf habits, Peter. Yes, so, yes, yes. Uh, you know, if I if I ever got good enough and whatever, I'd drop speaking in a heartbeat just to be out there on a golf course and uh, the pleasure that I've just come off the course to be able to chat with you this afternoon. Yeah, well, that's very good, Martin. But that's not a good enough answer because people still want to know <laughs> other aspects of how you, you know, worms your way into the... <laughs> The, the, the boardrooms or the decision-making uh, offices of businesses that decide you were good enough to go and speak, speak to their key people. So, all right, my first time I came across you, you were actually writing scripts, comedy scripts, for, for Doug Mulray on Triple M in the uh, yeah, 1980s. How did you, you worm your way into a job like that? Well, it's actually very funny. I, 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 I was listening to him. I was a fan of Mulray, and he had a whole lot of character voices. So I uh, just submitted some scripts, and I said, look, I'm not interested in any money. I just want to know whether you think it's funny and stuff like that. And he came back to me, and we, uh, for about nine months, I was you know, writing for his character voices, and, uh, and, and that era paid me when he put something to wear and didn't, when it didn't go to wear. And it was just fantastic. But uh, one of the reasons I was really interested in doing it and jumping into the speaking business is I think the greatest enemy at conferences is boredom. 
So I think one of the keys of, 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 of getting a result in the marketplace is you've got to keep people entertained as well as educated because there's, I believe Australians are like this stories, not theories, and they don't want to be told all this sort of stuff that happens in academic textbooks. They want real-world examples and in a way that you can relate, and also to be humorous, to keep people enjoying what they're doing. Uh, so I made that, uh, you know, uh, a, a bit of a point of difference uh, around there, but I was having Australian content, and also uh, that it will be enjoyable. And I must say, it's been it's been a happily embarrassing way to make a living for the last 35 years, mm. um, virtually doing... Uh, you know, comedy and entertainment. But the beauty is if uh, if nobody laughs at my jokes, I'm still a very high-content speaker. Whereas <laughs> if you're a comic and no one laughs, you've got nowhere to go. <laughs> now, the thing is this, you actually ask the question. So I- I'm trying to show people who haven't done what you said. So you actually, how did you contact Mulray? Did you push yourself until you eventually yeah. got some contact with him? Yeah, absolutely. You know what I did? I used to just send him the comedy scripts and stuff like that, yeah. follow up with a phone call and go, you know, and, and whatever there. And look, you just, it was just the hassling. I used to do sports motivation back in the 80s. I was approaching the football teams, you know, the NRL teams that were losing and whatever, and said, oh, I just want to talk to you players about the mental side of the game. I did some work with you know, St. George, with Illawarra, and with uh, Gordon Rugby Union and things like that. You just knock on doors. Look, at, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm a salesperson like anybody else out there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and it is a matter of just knocking on doors and copping the rejection and jumping out there. And, and, and if you believe in a product that's worthwhile, just get one testimonial, followed by two testimonials that you prove you can get a result and, and, and it, it's, it's a sales business like any other business. How did you get liked initially by the agents? Because in the speaking caper, especially in the, in the early days when I started, you know, you got your jobs through agents who thought you were pretty good, but somehow you had to show them. How did you get to show agents that you were pretty good? Well, you go, again, you, you knock on doors and I built relationships with those, you know, by Harry M. Miller back in the old days there and celebrity speakers and ICMI. You, you, you meet these people and you, you know, you, you sell yourself in and then, look, they only care about themselves, not you. So if they're not interested in developing you, they want to take some commission when they can make you an easy sale into to getting out there in the business. And so really for, for most of the, the, the business, uh, I've, I've worked really nicely with bureaus. In the last 10 years as I'm cutting the business down, down a little bit and living life a little bit more leisurely, uh, I do less work with bureaus and do more of a marketing myself mm. uh, to get out there. But it's, it's look, I can't emphasize enough, this, the stuff we talk about in the sales area has got to apply to every aspect of the business, including my own. Okay, testimonials. How important are they in the early stages in particular? Well, interesting. I think in the early stages, the testimonials are more important than the money uh, because what everybody wants to know who have you worked with and have you going to. You can't just go out there telling people you're going to change the world. They want evidence you've got some results there. So uh, when I started in the, in the mid 80s, I would go to a number of people who I had contacts and said, Look, I'll do the seminar for free on the condition that you give me a testimonial. You know, afterwards, mm. and I was getting testimonials which were more important than the money. Now, when my fees went up, because nobody ever puts a price on the testimonial, if I'm charging, I don't know, back in the old days, three thousand uh, dollars, and you've got a whole lot of testimonials, people think everybody paid three thousand mm. <laughs> dollars. You know what I mean? So you can justify your fees uh, on that. But in the early stages, and I'm saying this in all businesses, especially with the TripAdvisor generation and the consumer is cynical and talk to the buyers rather than I don't believe the seller anymore. Let me talk to the buyers. You know, this this area of advocacy and testimonials, I think, is more important now than it ever has been. Martin, tell us about the practice that you did, because let's face it, 
Yeah, if I if I call you a very polished perf- uh, performer nowadays, and I'm only doing this because you're on my te- on my uh, radio show, but let's just imagine that you are a very polished performer. Compare yourself to when you started, and and evaluate how important practice was to make perfect. Look, there's no doubt practice is important. Look, I'm one of those abnormal lucky people who's. Since I was three years old, I've been more uncomfortable in front of 500 people than one. I've never had a fear of public speaking or anything like that, you know? So I, I can't say, you know, it's magically from practice. But the whole element, you just got to get better at, you have to get better at what you do. And especially when I'm in the business of talking about how people are making purchase decisions and what businesses can do, my university is my audience. I find, I find a lot of times, People will tell me fantastic stories and I will trigger off thoughts, you know, and people will tell me success stories they've had and whatever. So your material builds through through uh, through actually uh, evolution of talking to people and doing things that work and doing more things that work. But fundamentally, the practice is, is, the practice is absolutely vital. I'm much better now than I was, you know, 35 years ago, but there's no shortcuts. You've got to get out there and, 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 and peddle your wares and practice and, and, and try and make sure that when you're in a situation where you have the opportunity to impress people and it's good for your business, uh, you want to be the best you can be at that time. Martin, how important has feedback been in your uh, progress from starter to professional? Okay, it's, it's been very interesting. Feedback uh, is is important as long as it's the right feedback. Uh, my belief is if, if you know, if, if two people tell you they don't like what you're doing, you don't listen. If 120 people tell you, then you listen. You know what I mean? You've got to be very conscious of the, the feedback that you are doing. But part of what I'm doing is I am trying to be contrarian. I'm trying to be provocative. So my objective is not to make everybody happy, you know, as opposed to a trainer. I'm not really interested in the training review saying, you know, find out of five or seven out of ten or anything like that. What I'm more interested in is provoking people, getting them into action and the, the best feedback is the results the client achieved rather than whether people laughed at the seminar, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm very conscious of making, I'm very conscious of the feedback as far as efficacy of the work, results of what I do. I'm less concerned with the, you know, you were standing there putting your hand in your pocket and that's not a professional way to speak or, or what, I'm not that madly interested in that sort of feedback. I'm interested in how I can add value more and is the stuff I'm doing working uh, rather than, you know, the, the, the thrill. I know there's a lot of speakers, all they want to hear is about their evaluations and 4.7 out of 5. I've never really been turned on by that. Mm-hmm. What I care about is whether the client will hire me again, that's the best feedback. You know, that I can get. It's funny, one of the, um, in my early days, one of my uh, best um, received speech ever was an enormous uh, room of probably a thousand um, attendees for a major insurance company, which I won't name. And the applause was so great that I, I actually bowed. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe there was a, it was a fantastic response. And when the feedback came, it basically told me I stunk. So, so, and, I, and I had to try and work out why that was the case. And, and, and what I learnt was that I was very, very critical of Bronwyn Bishop at the time, who was going for leadership of the Liberal Party. And some of my jokes were probably not as politically correct as they would be nowadays. And uh, the, the, um, the person who was the, the chairman of this particular company was president of the Liberal Party. 
And, and I, I learned a lot about not being political on a paid speech after that particular uh, I tell you, the ego of the client must be preserved at all costs. Mm-hmm. Okay, Mark. Well, I, so certainly you've given people a lot of insights. It's a lot of practice. It's being unbelievably pushy, and you couldn't get a more pushy person than Martin Grunstein. But, <laughs> but, but also being funny, entertaining, and educational is a very big um, uh, series of assets to have if you're trying to be successful in this game. Now, Mark, let's quickly go to retailers. Um, do you think retailers are, are their own worst enemy in such a competitive environment where you've got digital disruption, low wages growth, and all those sorts of things? Do you think retailers often just don't do enough innovation to get their business to succeed? Yeah, I, I really, I've long said, you know, with the fact that impact people talk about the impact online and how it's going to affect bricks and mortar retail, I don't think online's a threat to retail, I think retail's a threat to retail. You know, uh, at the end of the day, uh, what retail has to do, like any other thriving business, is they have to give, you know, people reasons to do business with them and create a positive experience. I, I, I must say, the customer service I find in a lot of retail stores are, are really poor and you know a lot of people you know if, if I'm not getting a good experience you know gee, I may as well get it cheaper online you know I, I, I really believe retail has to get it back into gear in this business of you know 20% off 40% off 60% off 80% off which I believe has so little credibility in the marketplace these days because no one ever believes sales anymore you know what, what I really want from retail is some reasons to come into place as far as benefits of doing business with them and a positive customer service experience, you know, from someone who has a bit of knowledge and has a bit of understanding and has a bit of empathy and has some skills to do that, uh, really that's what retail should be doing when it's at its best. Marty, you always say that people don't use the front of their, their, their shops to actually do enough to get people inside the shop because if you are a bricks yeah. and mortar business, your competitive advantage is that people are walking by but you reckon that people don't actually do enough on their windows or on their doors to bring people inside the shop. Yeah. Give us some examples. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, you know, the classic example, I was doing stuff in a, in a, in a, in a shopping centre. I was working with National Retail Train many years ago and I, there was 300 shops in the shopping centre and I got there early and I said, oh, I just want to have a look around the, the shopping centre and see what people have got in their windows. There were 300 retailers there and only two retailers had a non-price reason to go in to the store. Everybody had 20% off, 40% off on sale, but there was the old days of Nita Roddick, the body shop talked about what they did to the environment, you know, and the caring, you know, in that area, what they do to the environment as a reason to come in. And it was a very successful business. And there was a jeweler that had in its window, we do free cleaning and polishing for life, which is offered by every jeweler in Australia. They just never communicated out there. So the thing I'm trying to say to retail is, okay, 20% off or 40% is a reason to come in, but what about when a competitor is offering 50% off? It's not a really very good reason to come in anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you really want to do is give people reasons to come in. You know, I remember I was working with some optometrists years ago and they said, well, what would you put in your window if you were an optometrist? And I'd said, thinking of getting married, come in for an eye test. You might change your mind. And those funny things actually do work as long as they're not yep. politically incorrect, Martin. Correct. <laughs> Yes, 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 and none, neither of us would ever be that way, would we, Peter? Of course not. Of course not. <laughs> of course not. But, but the, the sameness is the thing I find. You know, retail is all about cut-through. Business is all about cut-through. It's been different from the other blows. You know, that, that's what business and marketing is all about. Yeah. But there's a massive sameness. And you know what? I've been speaking on this for 30 years. I don't think retail is any better now at it 
and it was 30 years ago. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, talking about what can be in the the, the front of a window and, and price discounts. That that story, which I, I love of yours, about the the, the, the the barber in a country town, I think it was in Kansas. <laughs> you should tell that one because I, I do think, Later. I think the bottom line of this story is that people really shouldn't just look look to buy things on price. Just tell that story one more yep. time, mate, will you? With pleasure. Yeah, no, there was a hairdresser in a small US country town charging 25 bucks for a haircut, making a killing, never had a competitor in his life. For the first time ever, a salon opened directly across the road with a big sign in its window saying $6 haircuts. And the first guy's in trouble. He says, if I keep the price at $25, I'll lose a lot of my customers for these $6 haircuts and I may not get them back. But if I drop my price to $6, I can drive this guy out of business, but I'll go broke myself. I can't take 19 bucks off my margin. What this guy did, which was extremely successful because most people think you either match the price or lose the sale. But what this guy did that was outstandingly successful was he kept his price at $25 and put a big sign on his own window that said, we fix $6 haircut. Mm. And and that's what we got to do. But yeah. actually I say, Enrico, we need to prevent $6 haircuts by giving people reasons to come to us apart from the discount. Yeah. And, and so Marty, obviously the, 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 the example, the person in your question, in your example, thought outside the square. And so that is probably a good piece of advice for everybody in retail. You just can't yep. keep thinking inside the, the square. You've got to come up with something that really grabs an audience and that yep. audience and that thing should be based on the quality of your service, the, 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 the kind of stuff that others just can't uh, compete with. Yes, 100%. You want the point of differentiation to be in the value, not the price, because otherwise it just becomes a commodity. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, I was working with a, a gift and car franchise many years ago, and they had in their window, don't touch. <laughs> Dumbest thing I've ever seen in retail, right? Giving people a reason not to come in. And also I said to the, the franchise, I said, if someone actually you know took something off the shell and it, and it broke, and say it was worth $25, and they refused to pay for it, would you sue them? And they said, no, no one's going to sue for $25. So I said, well, it's a stupid sign anyway. Mm. So I actually got them to do a brainstorming session. I said, on this retail area, I said, well, what should we replace that with? And one of the guys came up with an idea that they used, and they said, "Uh, please come in and feel free to touch everything except the staff. (laughs) Um, Which I think is much better than don't touch. It creates a bit of, you know, and... This is what I am desperate to try and see business people do. Instead of going 40% off, 50% off, winter sale, whatever it happens to be, have some innovation. Have some have some reasons to come in that are different from the other 50 shops in the mall or whatever you are dealing with and competing with out there in the marketplace. You're only bounded by your own imagination. Everybody is doing the same crap that isn't working and has been the same way that's made it really hard for a lot of retailers to make a living. Okay, Martin Grunstein, thanks for joining us. If people want to learn more from the great Martin Grunstein, how do they do it? <laughs> Just go to martingrunstein.com.au and I hope we will get together at a soon at a, at a conference later. Yeah, without a doubt. Martin, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Well, that's the show for the day. Thanks for joining us. I really thought it was a good idea to give you an idea of what it's like to be a portfolio manager and to be a professional speaker on the business circuit. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed finding out exactly that. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining us. I'll talk to you next week. Quentin time! Quentin time!